This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we're talking with Dr. Paul Murray, Professor Emeritus at Siena College. Paul is the author of Seeing Jesus in the Eyes of the Oppressed, a History of Franciscans Working for Peace and Justice, published by the Academy of American Franciscan History in 2022. In this book, which is comprised of eight mini-biographies, Paul explores Franciscan efforts to establish racial and economic justice and to promote peace and nonviolence. Seeing Jesus in the Eyes of the Oppressed tells the story of eight Franciscans, four priests, three sisters, and one brother, and their communities who struggled to create a more just and equitable society. In all, the book emphasizes the passion and struggle of Franciscans in the United States to create a more just world within society and within the church. Paul, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Allison. Yeah, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Oh, I I thought about this uh, preparing for the interview, and I begin. I'm going to begin with elementary school because that was my first introduction to Franciscans. In second grade, my mother enrolled me in the St. James parochial school in Wausau, Wisconsin, and I was taught there by the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. And stretching back in my memory, I remember in fourth grade, the sisters were working with the students to put on a a pageant about the life of St. Francis, and I was chosen to be St. Francis. I don't know how that happened, but I was very thankful that it was not a speaking role. I was dressed in a Franciscan brown habit with the the cincture and all of the apparatus that goes with that. And I was pacing back and forth on the stage and a voice came over the, the PA system And it was the voice of God speaking to me, (laughs) saying, Francis, build your church. (laughs) 
I had forgotten about that incident for a long time. And then many years later, I wound up teaching at Siena College, which is run by the Franciscan friars, and that renewed my Franciscan connection and proved to be a very happy home for me for 37 years and led to this particular assignment. But in between time, I got my PhD in sociology and studied race relations and collective behavior, which means social movements especially. And of course, this was during the 1960s when there were plenty of social movements to study. And I, I focused very much on, on race relations because I was involved as a student in the civil rights movement, spent one summer working in rural Mississippi. And uh, on that occasion, I had a very brief encounter with Sister Thea Bowman, who was uh, teaching at the Catholic school in Canton, Mississippi, which was where I went to mass on Sunday morning. <laughs> so that got me started. And approximately 15 years ago, I began doing a really kind of a systematic research about Catholic involvement in the civil rights movement. And initially, I thought it would be a, a fairly short assignment because I didn't think there were that many Catholics. I, I knew of a, a few people. I'd met Father Grappi, for example, but I knew there was not a, a, a large number of Catholics. And I started as I started digging, I found many more who had not really come to public attention. And that's kind of been my mission for the last 15 years is to help to bring the stories of, of these Catholic activists to a larger audience. I'm not sure that publishing in academic journals is the best way to reach the largest audience, but that's the method that I have chosen. And I've published about a dozen articles thus far, and I've got a number of others that are in various stages of preparation. So that's been my uh, focus during my you know, last decade on the faculty and in retirement, I've pursued that. And it was one of those articles that led to the invitation to do this book. My article about Father Nathaniel Macheski had been published in the Journal of Mississippi History and I had circulated that uh, among the, the faculty at uh, Siena College. And uh, Father Dan Dwyer, who's in the history department, had read the article. And he is also part of the Academy of American Franciscan History. And uh, a year after I retired, he called me and said, you know, we are looking to publish a book about Franciscans working for social justice. We've already published a book about Franciscan parish life, parish ministry, and we've published another book about Franciscan communications. But we need somebody to write about Franciscans and social justice. We wondered if you were interested. And so I spoke with the series editor here, 
And I was obviously very interested in, in the project, but I had noticed that the two previous books had dealt exclusively with male Franciscans. And I knew that the sisters who had taught me in elementary school would be very upset if my book about Franciscans would focus entirely on men. And with the, you know, the series editor was very willing to my suggestion that to focus on Franciscan sisters as well as the friars. And so we proceeded in that regard. Yeah. And, you know, it's really great. It's a, it's almost an even breakdown, I guess, on gender lines um, of who's represented in this book. And I think that's, that's really necessary when you're talking about, especially these movements, because women were such a a backbone to grassroots work. And you've kind of hit on my next question a bit. You know, you've talked about how you got into this project. But I guess my next question is, you know, what made these eight Franciscans deserving, I guess, of the spotlight? You know, I know of Sister Antona Ebo from my work, but not everyone does. So why these eight? Well, I already knew about, before starting the book, I knew about Father Nathaniel, who worked in Greenwood, Mississippi. I knew about Sister Thea, and I had interviewed Sister Antona. So I had three Franciscans right from the opening gun. Then I started asking other you know, people who were knowledgeable about the Franciscan orders. And I began to learn about the, uh, the tree, you know, <laughs> the many different branches and uh, the distinctions between the, the different groups in the Franciscan family. <laughs> and I listened to, to people who were, were knowledgeable in the field and they offered me suggestions. And I, you know, kind of broadcast inquiries to other people who I thought might be able to to help me. And I settled on the, the, well, I had already had the three, so I settled on the other five based in part on recommendations that I had received from, you know, professionals in the field and, and Franciscans, and also based on whether there was you know, sufficient information available to, to really write of, of, you know, of a fairly complete biography of them. And, uh, you know, these are the ones that, that I wound up with. <laughs> I, I definitely learned a, a great deal about uh, Franciscan involvement with the farm workers movement, which was something that I had not been aware of earlier, but uh, that was a new area for me, and certainly some of the peace activists as well. As we've already talked a bit about already, this book consists of eight mini-biographies, you know, four priests, three sisters, and one brother, um, who are all engaged in a wide range of social justice work from racial and economic justice to, you know, nuclear 
uh, disarmament and world peace in the U.S. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about one of these eight Franciscans uh, that our listeners might not have heard of before. Well, let me begin with, with Father Nathaniel. You've heard me mention his name. Father Nathaniel grew up in Detroit. He was the son of an auto worker, joined the Franciscans, was a member of the province of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which was headquartered in Wisconsin. At this time, the various provinces were kind of identified by nationalities, and the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin was a Polish uh, group of Franciscans. And until the 19, maybe late 50s, even maybe as early as late as the 1960s, instruction in their seminary was done in the Polish language. <laughs> Father Nathaniel wanted to work among the poorest of the poor. And he had been assigned to be a high school teacher taught high school English in Wisconsin. But he appealed to his superiors. And at that time, the superior of his order was establishing a mission in Mississippi. Initially, they had been invited by the bishop because Mississippi was very uh, had very few Catholics, and uh, you know it was considered to be a, a territory where missionary work could possibly succeed. And so the Franciscans sent down a couple of friars, and Father Nathaniel joined that initial group after a year, and basically they they built a mission in Greenwood, Mississippi. They built it from scratch. And it was identified as serving the African-American community. And so you might say it was a segregated environment. Uh, at, you know, and Mississippi at that time was very strictly segregated. And the only way in which an African-American mission could succeed was within that segregated context. But of course, since the priests and the sisters were white, that the mission was never entirely one race or the other. One of the things that uh, made this, this research a pleasure was talking to the African-Americans who had been among the early converts. As a matter of fact, in my initial contact to Mississippi, I'm on the telephone talking to uh, one of the, the friars there in Greenwood, Mississippi. And he says, now, where are you calling from? You're calling from Albany, New York? Well, you know, you should talk with Carolyn Harris. Carolyn was one of our first converts and she's living in Albany. They gave me her number. I called her, set up an appointment, found out she lived exactly four blocks from my home. Small world. She told me about her family, her 
brothers and sisters who joined her. She was the first member of her family to convert. Her mother joined them and uh, her brothers and sisters and uh, then introduced me to many other people who remained in Mississippi. I took a trip down there, interviewed people on the site. They referred me to other people who were no longer there that I interviewed over the telephone. Uh, learned about Father Nathaniel's involvement in the civil rights movement. This is during, well, he was there, you know, from the, he arrived there, I believe it was 1951. So he was there during the time of the murder of Emmett Till. Greenwood was only a few miles away from Money, Mississippi, where the murder took place. And he was there in the early days of the civil rights movement when voter registration was the main objective. And initially, he was not involved directly in the movement. He was sympathetic to the movement. He wished them well. He encouraged members of the congregation to register to vote. But he was not an active participant in the movement. But after the, the main thrust of the movement, the one that, that people are probably most familiar with was 1964, when many civil rights workers came to Mississippi in 1965. And after that, the movement kind of slowed down. But in Greenwood, there had been very little progress. The only progress really had been voter registration following the passage of the civil rights, the, the voting rights bill. But African-Americans still were not hired to work in any meaningful capacity, any responsible capacity in local stores or in the city government. Um, and the African-American community had tried on numerous occasions to speak to the city government, and they were simply shut out. This was a very segregated society. Eventually, Father Nathaniel decided that a boycott was necessary, a boycott of the white merchants. Hit them in the pocketbook if they're not going to pay any attention any other way. And the boycott went on for over a year, and local merchants were, were hurt. He took a leading role together with two African-American ministers and uh, was identified as, as being the main figure and was the subject of a great deal of abuse. Uh, many of the store owners were Catholic. And they were especially upset when they saw priests and sisters who were demonstrating in favor of the boycott. But he persisted, and uh, in the end, they met with some success. Probably the, the first indication of, of their success was the willingness of the mayor. This was a new mayor who, who was selected elected largely because of the black voters who said, yes, we should hire 
African-American policemen, firemen. We should have African-Americans in responsible positions. And so that was one element of, of a success and it ultimately decided that the boycott would be called off. But he suffered a great deal because white families whom he had ministered to, because he was also ministering to the white parish in the community, they largely turned their backs on him. And uh, it was his, his later years were difficult. People who lived with him said that he did not sleep well, that uh, they could hear him tossing and turning, walking late at night up and down the hallways because uh, it just was not the kind of, I mean, he was, he accepted that, but it was not a pleasant situation for him. Right. Yeah. You talked a bit about your methodology there briefly. And I was wondering if we could talk about that for a minute, because some of the subjects in your book, some of the Franciscans have passed away. So how did you do your research and interviews? Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, six of, of the eight people I profiled are deceased, but all of them were active in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. There were sufficient number of people alive who had worked closely with them, who had been helped by them, who were colleagues and associates of them, so that there was no shortage of people to interview. One instance, I, I traveled to Mississippi and was interviewing a, a woman who had gone to the St. Francis School. And at the conclusion of the interview, I asked her, as I asked other people, you know, are there other people I should interview? And she said, oh, yes, you know, you should talk to the, to the pastor of the Black Methodist Church. And I said, oh, you know, what's his address? Oh, well, he moved to Alabama, but I've got his phone number. Let me call him. <laughs> and got him on the phone in her home. And I made an appointment to do a uh, interview of, over the phone with that person. These individuals that, that I'm talking about left a whole network of people who had been affected by the Franciscans, who'd been involved in working with them, who had benefited from their efforts, and were only too happy to share with me the stories of, of what had happened. I had some wonderful interviews with uh, you know, people my age who had gone to school in the St. Francis School and talked to me about the, the sisters and, and the priest who had taught them. One man went on from, well, he was uh, in that, that same family of the initial converts, and he went on to earn a, a PhD from Yale University and is now teaching at a uh, private girls' school in New Jersey, I believe. And he went on and on about the, the teaching, the, the, the effort of the teachers. And 
one of the things that, that struck me, one of his comments was that he learned not just English and history and math, but he learned not to hate white people because he had been taught by these women who were dedicating their lives in a very hostile environment to work for the benefit of people like himself. And, you know, that was something I, I hadn't seen coming and that has really stuck with me as a uh, impact on the folks who were working with these heroic individuals. Yeah. And the community seemed so supportive of both the Franciscans' work for these social changes, but also the the activists themselves as well. But the church hierarchy sometimes did not necessarily agree with what the Franciscans in the book were doing. So how did these Franciscans get around the opposition of the church to still participate in the movements they were a part of? What I realized is that there is a dual system of authority. You know, there are the bishops who have no domain in their given territory, and then there are the superiors of the religious orders. And so members of the religious orders are are subject to both forms of authority. The provincial leaders, the religious superiors, were by and large very supportive of the work that the Franciscan friars and sisters were doing in these different contexts. And if there was a problem with the local bishop, they would act as intermediaries sometimes. They would act as advisors to tell the Franciscans how to deal with some of these problematic situations they wound up in. One example that I obtained from a uh, former Franciscan friar was that he had a, a desire to work with the farm workers and had been assigned to Delano, California, which was the home of the uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement. But the bishop was very, uh, let's say, unwelcoming, the bishop of Fresno. And the, the superior, this is Father Alan McCoy, who I write about, he said, well, I know the bishop is due to retire in six months or a year. So why don't you just cool your heels for a short time and perhaps the new bishop will be more welcoming to you. They were able to act as as intermediaries. They were able to give them advice. And uh, sometimes that meant relocating. Father Louis Vital was initially in Los Angeles. And Cardinal McIntyre was not very welcoming to 
social activists. And so the way I understand it is that uh, Father Louis basically got kicked out of the Los Angeles diocese and was then reassigned to the Las Vegas diocese where the bishop was more welcoming. And that led eventually to the creation of the anti-nuclear movement at the test site out in the desert, 60 miles from Las Vegas. So (laughs) inadvertently, uh, Cardinal McIntyre put Father Louis in a good place for him to organize his anti-war bent. So, and and there were other occasions where you know you one of the other Franciscan friars was was Father Joe Nangle, and when he came to the United States, he was a former missionary in Latin America. He wanted very much to help to convert. Americans to the insights of liberation theology. He was given permission to operate outside of the traditional Franciscan assignments. He was not assigned to a parish. He was not assigned to a school or some other organized mission. He was able to create his own assignments. And for a long time, he said his activism was tolerated as long as as he remained faithful to the the mission of the franciscans he could do what he was doing but it was clear that that many of his fellow franciscans did not feel too uh, charitable towards his work Nevertheless, eventually, uh, he was accepted back into the fold, uh, was uh, appointed or elected to the the provincial council, and in later years uh, was, you know, honored by his peers. Yeah. And one question that, you know, popped into my mind when I started reading your book, especially the biographies of the Black Franciscans, is that while the they are fighting for racial equality and justice across the U.S. These black Franciscans were also faced with racism within the church. Like Brother Booker, who after telling a blind elderly capuchin he was a was black, he was told then, you can't be serious. The capuchins would never let a darkie in. So, you know, that this got me thinking, you know, how did these Black Franciscans handle and challenge the racism they were faced with as they fought for social and racial justice. So the three Black Franciscans that I write about, each one of them was the first Black member of their particular congregation. But the congregations were willing now to incorporate African-Americans where in the past they had not been. Now, in Sister Antona's case, if you're familiar with that, she was accepted, but the three black novices who were accepted into the Franciscan Sisters of Mary were put in a separate dormitory. They were accepted, but not fully accepted. And I'm sure this this was a very difficult cross to bear for, for Sister Antona 
and the other sisters in that situation. She persisted because of, of the faith and the, in her calling. And she was able, I think, to convert the members of her order to realize that uh, they needed to, to make changes in the way that, that they dealt with African-Americans. There's a story told about Sister Thea when uh, she went, she decided that she wanted to be a Franciscan sister of perpetual adoration. And she was accepted to go to Wisconsin to be part of the mother house, to be a, a novice and a postulant in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Her father cautioned her. He said, you know, they're not going to like you up there. And her response was, I'm going to make them like me. When she was placed in her first teaching assignment, it was at an all-white school in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And some of the parents were not too happy that uh, their children were being taught by a black woman. But after they met her, after they got to know her, they found that, that she was an excellent teacher. And uh, the students especially enjoyed singing the African-American traditional spirituals that, that she had taught them in their classes. And so, at least among these three, I, I know not all African-Americans accepted into mostly white orders persisted, but the three, these three individuals had the determination to follow their vocation in spite of, of not being in a very uh, welcoming environment. As uh, Brother Booker, first of all, he, he chose to be a brother. He did not want to pursue ordination and was working as a cook and a secretary, basically in a, a more servile role. But he told his superior, you know, he was getting tired of working in all white environments. This was in, in the 1960s, of course, when, you know, more consciousness was emerging. And his superior agreed to assign him to a Capuchin parish in inner city Milwaukee. It just so happened at that time that they were deciding to open a, a social service agency. And the Capuchins who were running the organization knew that it would not be successful unless they had an African-American head. So Brother Booker was chosen to lead the creation of, of the House of Peace. And for 25 years, it was pretty much his baby. He's the one that, that set out all of the objectives, and he's the one that raised the funds, and he's the one that made it work. And you can visit the House of Peace today in inner city Milwaukee and uh, see that it's continuing to to serve the population at need there. And that's a great transition to my next question. All the people featured in this book contributed to their their movements in different ways. And I wanted to talk about that. 
that being demonstrations or grassroots work serving the community. So how did these efforts by these Franciscans contribute to the achievements of their respective movements? Did the gospel they use overlap or demonstration styles overlap with each other? Well, first thing that that I want to to clarify here is that, you know, if, if we're talking about, you know, protest demonstrations out on the streets, with the exception of Father Louis, who seems to have a predilection for getting arrested, most of the other people I, I write about were people who were not primarily out there in the front of the movement, not the people who were holding the, the megaphone, but they were the people behind the scenes who were doing the organizing. Now, that differs from from one example to the next, but I think the one thing that would link them together was that each of them subscribed to some variation of liberation theology. And one of the central tenets of, of the liberation theology is that it's the mission of the church to be on the side of the poor and underprivileged. And especially, of course, that's very much in the Franciscan tradition. And all of the individuals that that I'm talking about here, all eight of them, very firmly believed that, that it was an important mission of their order and more importantly, of of the larger Catholic Church, to be advocates and uh, spokespeople for the poor. And one of the the distinctions that was being made at that time was the distinction between working for charity and working for justice. People who worked with farm workers, for example. For many years, the uh, assistance to farm workers had taken the form of providing better housing, providing food baskets at Thanksgiving time and at Christmas time, providing medical care, and uh, you know helping people who, who got into legal trouble. But it was always the more well-to-do people helping the poor people. And as a new understanding of justice began to to permeate the ranks of activist organizations, the idea became much more clearly defined that working for justice involved helping people people in need, people facing oppression, helping them to create the kinds of organizations and institutions that would allow them to solve their own problems. This was something that the the Franciscans working with the farm workers learned from Cesar Chavez. If you help support the union of farm workers, we will be able to get bargained for 
better housing, better working conditions, better wages, and we will not need the Christmas baskets that you have given us in the past. And this message, you know, slowly seeped into all of the the different activist organizations. And I think this would be, I, I think you could agree, to varying degrees, this was very much underlying the uh, the movements of, of the 60s and is a common reading of the Gospels that uh, is inspired by the work of the liberation theologists. Yeah, I think I, I wrote somewhere in my notes, uh, this is very much liberation theology when I first started reading your book, their approach, their gospels that they were using. So the most recent social justice work you mentioned in your book is Father Joseph Nangle, who protests the detainment and mistreatment of immigrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border in 2019. So similar to my last question, you know, how does the gospel preached by Father Nangle differ from, say, the gospel preached by Sister Patricia Drydeck. You know, they're at different points in, you know, their perspective movements, but I think the two of them are really interesting comparisons. <laughs> yes, they are. Father Joe Nangle is a remarkable individual in part because of his ability as a communicator. One of the things that he has, and he's, he has moved from a number of different positions, some within the church and, and some that, that were definitely not part of the, the traditional assignments. He worked, for example, with the Sojourner community, which is, uh, had its origins in an evangelical Protestant ministry, but has become a more ecumenical one. And he liked the social justice work they were doing, and he worked very closely with that community. But wherever he's been, he has also been a pastor. So he's worn these two different hats, you know, not, not the pastor, but he's been in a pastoral role. And his, his current position is as a uh, focused in Washington, D.C., on a congregation that is multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and he is particularly involved with ministering to the Latino population in that particular community. You know, he says mass in Spanish and deals with especially people who are having struggles there. But he also speaks to the larger community, and he's not focused exclusively on on the Latin Americans. And the one thing that, that everyone who worked with him says is that he has this unique ability to address questions that are divisive without alienating the people who are listening to him who might disagree with his message. And 
I wish there was a, a secret formula where we could take his method and infuse it into <laughs> many of, of our other leaders. But uh, he has kind of radiates from, from his, his personality, his, his great personal warmth that other people are drawn to him, even though they might not agree with his politics. Nevertheless, they are willing to listen to what he has to say. And I, I was very impressed by that. Certainly, these Franciscans have operated in different ways. Father Joan Angle and, and Sister Pat Drydick have typically operated outside of the traditional Franciscan communities. Uh, I mean, they are still members of their congregations, but they are not residing with other Franciscans. And this is with the, the approval of their superiors. And they remain in touch with their fellow Franciscans, but they feel called to, to work in, you know, side by side with, with lay people, with people of, of different faiths. And, uh, you know, I think one of your questions may be, you know, what is, is the future for Franciscans? And, and I definitely see that as a, a, a direction where Franciscans will be moving in the future as the number of vowed Franciscans becomes smaller, there are not going to be a lot of other Franciscans to call upon. You've got to be able to work with, with people outside of those people, people who are sympathetic to the, the Franciscan mission, but not people who have taken lifetime vows to, to be Franciscans. Yeah, that that kind of <laughs> leads us perfectly into, you know, my last two questions. You know, you're ending the book by looking towards the future of the Franciscan fight for social justice and the difficulties that are arising within Franciscan missions in the 21st century, that being a decrease in those who are joining and becoming sisters and friars and priests. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about those difficulties and how the missions and the individual religious are handling them? Well, as as I was writing that that conclusion, I I started searching for some statistics. And certainly for Franciscan sisters, they must feel that that they are, you know, almost on the verge of extinction. Certainly with, within the United States, there are very few young women who are entering the, the religious orders. You know, you may have, have read about the, the sister who's working among the, the street people in San Francisco. She is, is, Sister Carmen is 60, and she says, I am the youngest American, a member of my particular community. You know, the Franciscan orders are contracting and merging, and there simply are not going to be 
the numbers that there were in the 1950s and the 60s. The picture is is somewhat better for male Franciscans. I I continue to meet young Franciscan friars who coming are coming to assignments at at Siena College, but certainly their numbers are seriously down as well. So the Franciscans that remain in the orders are going to have to work with uh, people who are sympathetic to the, the Franciscan mission, but who are not people who have uh, taken the vows. And that's, that's going to mean working in organizations that may have, you know, some different philosophies or uh, may in, entail, you know, being a solo practitioner, <laughs> if, to borrow a medical analogy. But yes, it's going to be very different. You know, that the next 20, 30, 40 years is, is going to be a very different situation than the period that that I was writing about. Well, it looks like we have just enough time for one more question. So I was wondering, what projects are you currently working on? Are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on seeing Jesus in the eyes of the oppressed that you're going to plan on pursuing? Or has your work taken a new direction? I know it's kind of a difficult question since the book just came out. But you know, not difficult at all. While I was working on this assignment, I had to set aside another book that I had been working on. It was a, a memoir of, of my younger years and the experience that I had working for civil rights in, in Mississippi, much more autobiographical, but uh, focused primarily on the summer that, that I spent working in the South. It was a time of... Uh, great personal awakening for for myself and you know i've i've got the manuscript completed but uh, finding a publisher is is going to be my next task but at the same time i have a another project which is in a very similar vein to the franciscans although not focusing on franciscans per se and that goes back to Catholic activists in, in the civil rights movement. Present time, I've, I've collected biographies of at least 20 to 25 Catholic activists involved in working for civil rights. Going back, I'm going back to the uh, 1930s and 40s up, up to you know the 1960s and 70s. And uh, some are, are religious, but uh, the majority of them are, are civilians. Some eventually drifted away from, from their Catholic roots, but I have included them as well. And I, I'm hopeful to, uh, to draw upon the research that I've done, as well as contributions from, from other scholars to put together a, a a collection of uh, these kind of mini biographies of Catholics working for civil rights. There was just a couple of years ago a, a wonderful comprehensive book written about the 
institutional Catholic Church and its response to desegregation by uh, Mark Newman, a, a British scholar. And it's very comprehensive and it deals with the institutional church. But I want to focus on the individual actors, some of whom were part of the institutional church and and majority of whom were working with non-religious organizations in a whole variety of different situations. So there's, you know, Father Grappi, who was leading open housing demonstrations in Milwaukee. There's uh, activists such as Diane Nash, who was very important in the Nashville movement and the Freedom Rides and the working in, in Mississippi. A uh, Father Maurice Willette, who was one of, well, was the only white person in Selma, Alabama, to come out in favor of voting rights for, for African Americans in Selma. These are people that, that uh, made important contributions and uh, many of, of their involvement, uh, for many of them, their involvement became out of a religious context. So I, I want to make sure that, that these people get their due. So <laughs> it was not difficult at all to talk about my next projects, plural. Well, they all sound really interesting, and I can't wait to read more. Well, um, so thanks, Paul, for being on the show. Let, let me just say, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, if, if they would be interested in contacting me, let me give them my email address. And I, I hope this doesn't backfire. <laughs> but my email is Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, at Siena, S-I-E-N-A, just one N, dot E-D-U. And I'd be very happy to hear from people who might be interested in the work that I'm have done or the work that I have yet to do. Well, this has been great. And this has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Book Network podcast.